Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 124 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today we'll be speaking with legendary writer and comedian John Cleese, who helped create the classic geek films Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Monty Python's Life of Brian. He also wrote and starred in the TV show Faulty Towers, and the feature film A Fish Called Wanda, and has appeared more recently in various Harry Potter, James Bond, and Shrek films. His new memoir, So Anyway, is out now. And now, here's our interview with John Cleese. All right, so we're here with John Cleese. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Okay, so the name of the show is Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, so obviously we're big Douglas Adams fans. And in your book, you talk about how you and Graham Chapman may have inspired Douglas Adams to put the number 42 into Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Could you tell us about that? Well, I was curious about it because um, the only time we've ever used the uh, number as a, a punchline for a sketch was a sketch that Graham Chapman wrote in 1962. Um, which was a parody of a Church of England sermon, um, which finished with the punchline 42. And I was amused later to discover that um, Douglas Adams had said it was a secret to the universe, and he knew Graham. And I think it's just coincidence, but it's it's something that people are interested in, so maybe they'll do a bit of research for me. (laughs) I mean, so did you know Douglas Adams? Are you a big fan of his? Yes, I met uh, Douglas two or three times, and I was introduced to him, I remember, on uh, one occasion, and uh, about four days later, um, I noticed how tall he was. I went to a party, and uh, Graham was there, I remember, and um, suddenly uh, Douglas appeared, and we had a long chat, but what what surprised me was that he was towering above me. Now, I'm Hmm. six, four and a half. And um, I was quite surprised that he seemed to have grown, but I noticed after we'd been chatting for some time, he was wearing four-inch high heels. And I was thinking, this is very bizarre. I've never met a very tall man who wore high heels before. Um, and But I, I didn't like to ask him. I didn't know if it was a, you know, it was a joke or what. But um, I subsequently knew him a little bit. He asked me to do a voice for his... Um, uh, his computer game, which he had great hopes, and apparently his friends in the computer business told him that uh, the, 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 the time of that type of game had passed, but he put an enormous amount of work into it. Um, in fact, so much, I think he'd done so much work that he was unable to pay me for doing the voice of the bomb, but I did it anyway in exchange for a Chinese meal. Um <laughs> And then I saw him a couple more times in London, and then he moved out to Santa Barbara and um, was uh, was going to work there and, and travel down and work with Disney a lot. Um, but I didn't see him very much. Um, and we were not immensely close friends, just, just good acquaintances. And then, of course, I heard this awful business about his, his dying, I think, during a workout with, with, a, with an instructor, all right? Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, I knew his his wife, Jane, a little bit, liked her very much. I just thought she was very interesting. She was a barrister, and they tend to be pretty smart. But that was more or less the extent to which I knew him. 
And how about just in general? Are you a science fiction fan? Do you read much science fiction or watch the movies? No, it's it's never interested me very much. You know, certain genres do interest people and others don't. I'm I'm actually genuinely fascinated by life on this planet. And in particular, whether it has any meaning, you know, whether there's anything other go, uh, going on other than the uh, sort of Richard Dawkins um, view of the universe is, is, is just uh, accidental, um, the sort of uh, reductionist view of science, which uh, I, I think there's more going on than that. I don't think it'll ever be proved, and I think that people are born with a tendency to think there's something more than the physical, and others are born with a tendency to think that it's just the physical, you know? But I'm certainly in the first category, but I never expect to find anything like definitive truth. Uh, but it is the stuff that I'm primarily interested in. And also I'm fascinated by psychology, um, and that's always been the basis of almost everything that I've got deeply involved in even uh, what they call spiritual matters. And uh, again, I probably would clash with all the people who think that the materialist reductionist explanation of the universe is the only one possible. But I'm uh, reading a book uh, right now, which I find, i see if I can find it at the moment, it's among my books here, which I think is quite extraordinarily interesting. It's written by a philosopher called Thomas Nagel, N-A-G-E-L, and it's called Mind and Cosmos, and the subtitle is Why the Materialist Non-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly Wrong. It's a very difficult book, but it's deeply interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, you talk about religion somewhat in, in your uh, memoir, so anyway. And you well, say I, make, I, make fun of, yeah, I make fun of religion by and large, because I think that if there is anything going on, very few people in the organized churches know anything about it. I think they've taken uh, ideas from religious leaders and completely lost the essence of them over the, over the decades or centuries. Well, yeah, I mean, I just watched your debate with Malcolm Muggeridge and uh, Arthur Mervyn Stockwood, and those men certainly don't seem particularly wise to me. No, I thought they were idiots. I couldn't believe when I watched it about uh, six months ago, um, I think it was some sort of anniversary of the debate or of the release of Life of Brown. I couldn't, I really could hardly credit how stupid they were. It was quite a shock. <laughs> I heard Terry Jones say that that was actually Douglas Adams's favorite bit of television, that he would just keep it on his VCR and play it for people over and over again. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, what I was, I was surprised is how little there was in it of any real value, because they were putting up arguments that were so patently absurd, and you could almost say they were uh, unscientific, their attitudes, you know? And uh, I remember Michael and I were quite astonished. And after the debate, I remember going off. And I'd always rather liked Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a favorite of uh, British television for many years. And I went and sat in the dressing room afterwards as he had his makeup taken off. And he couldn't find anything good to say about the film at all, which was recently voted the number one British film of all time. You know, now, I don't take those polls very seriously, but if you voted number one, it's going to mean it's a pretty good film. And he thought it was absolute trash. And I remember saying to him, 
Well, don't you think that the uh, stuff about the Judean people's front, the people's front, did, did that not amuse you? And he said, I remember he said, uh, oh, Dostoevsky did it much better than the brothers Karamazov. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm going to give up. <laughs> Well, I mean, speaking of the life of Brian, there was just this Jesus and Brian conference at King's College London this year. Uh, you want to tell us about that? Yes, I, t- I attended some of it. Oh, unfortunately, the um, rehearsal period for the reunion show at the O2, you know, the, the Python reunion, uh, the show had become so much more complicated with the singing and the dancing that uh, I was only able to go along to the conference on a couple of occasions, but I was fascinated to find that um, that the uh, serious academics there, including guys whose books I've read, I'm interested in the subject, like Bart Ehrman, um, they were fascinating because they said that the, the movie itself had actually influenced academic thought. And I found that hard to credit, but they mm-hmm. told me absolutely genuinely that that was the case. But I think that this is because People, whatever discipline they're in, get slightly stuck in in the uh, accepted norms of that discipline, you know? And when I said to one very senior uh, cleric um, that it seemed to me that uh, the Sermon on the Mount was all about um, trying to reduce the power of one's ego, which seems to be exactly what it's about, it doesn't say blessed to the powerful or blessed to the rich. It's not about power. It's about the opposite of power. And, and he found that quite revolutionary. So it's stuff I'd like to get more interested in. But I think that the, the fact is anybody who thinks that the Bible was breathed into existence by God just hasn't read about the history of the Bible, you know, and how various conferences or synods or whatever you want to call them uh, chose which books would be the definitive version by a by vote. And uh, certain books were excluded, like the Gospel of Thomas, which I think are just rather more interesting than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of religion, I thought it was interesting in your book, you talk about how you get requests from people all the time, and that the oddest request you ever got was that someone invited you to a christening of their cat. That's right. Quite right, good memory. Um, I didn't go, so I don't know. I didn't. I, <laughs> I don't know what it would have been, and it was obviously humorous, but it did become me think the most interesting. But you know, I get so many requests naturally. I think people think that I just sit around most of the time on my porch whittling sticks and trying to think of interesting things to do, whereas my life is actually absurdly busy and uh, filled up with an enormous amount of stuff, which right at the moment I'm not able to contain. But if you spend two years writing a book, um, uh, even though it has been an extraordinarily pleasant experience, much better than writing films or anything like that, and once you've done that, then you think, well, I would like people to read it. Um, so then you're stuck with the publicity, and most of which is okay, but there's just a lot of it. Well, I mean, actually, uh, you in uh, at that conference, you you described the press. Wait, can I find the quote? Uh, I think a second-rate scum. Oh, yeah. When you deal with the media, you have no idea what second-rate scum they are. Uh, I mean, what uh, what sort of experiences with the media have you had that makes you uh, say that? 
Well, they would say largely poor. One, um, one never seems to have any real contact with the British media without emerging from it, feeling slightly soiled. These are not people, by and large, to be trusted. And even if the individual journalists are sent out, and a couple of very nice young men uh, interviewed me and really listened to what I had to say and asked very interesting questions, then um, they will find that their copy has been changed by editors. And I have a reputation in England from the papers of being quite difficult and grumpy and prickly and all this kind of thing. Uh, and one of the reviews of the book said he was surprised, please, is surprisingly gracious. And I wanted to say, you know, my friends weren't surprised by the book because that's because actually they know me. And the people who are surprised, the people who bought this image of me that has been foisted on me by the British press for the simple reason I have such a low opinion of them. So they're hardly likely to have high opinion of me. <laughs> I mean, what do you think makes for a really good interview? Do you think in your, your book you mentioned um, uh, David Frost did some really good interviews with um, Major Mike Hoare and Emil Savundra? I mean, just as an interview, I'm just curious what makes, in your opinion, for a really good interview? Well, I think there's two essential uh, components. The first thing is um, that if it's a radio or television interview, that the interviewer is himself relaxed. If the interviewer is relaxed, it's almost impossible to do a bad interview. If the interviewer is not relaxed, then it's almost impossible to do a good interview. And the second thing is I think that he should or she should be genuinely interested in the book and uh, want to know more about certain aspects of it. And it's nice when people ask about different aspects. Some people are interested in the content. Some people are interested in the, the process. Some are interested in my first reactions to the uh, learning that I, I'm in the publishing world and how the publishing world works. You know that, for example, I learned about three weeks ago that 90% of celebrity uh, autobiographies are not written by the celebrity. You know, 90% of them are ghostwritten. I had no idea the figure was so high. So different interviewers ask different things, which is, you know, really rather fun. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, some stuff from the book that really struck me is you have a couple of things that sort of say what the inspiration, some of the inspirations were for Holy Grail and for Life of Brian. Uh, you say one of your earliest memories was of being attacked by a rabbit. Uh, and of course, that makes me think of Holy Grail. But you don't say that that was a, uh, an influence on it. Was that the scene in Holy Grail? No, I don't, think, I don't think that that was the, the reason for it. I mean, I wasn't attacked by a rabbit. That was an attempt to be humorous. <laughs> I was nibbled. I think I used the phrase, I was nibbled by a rabbit. But I was uh, just talking about the very small number of things that one really remembers from one's early childhood. And I gave that as a, I hope, humorous example of the triviality of most of one's memories. Mm -hmm. Um, but you did say, so the, the Black Knight scene, you said, was inspired by a, uh, a lesson that one of your teachers told you when you were young? That's right. Yes, a lovely guy called Jampaji who died at the age of 101 and who managed to fight in both world wars. I never came across anyone who did that. He was a very a good teacher of English, and I liked him enormously. And he would go off on these wonderful excursions where there were nothing to do with the subject he was teaching. And he told the story about a a um, wrestling match that had taken place in 
and ancient Rome. And I don't, it took place apparently in a private house because there wasn't any television in those days, as I uh, think even young American males <laughs> realize. And um, as a result of that, one of the entertainment things sometimes put on was to get professional wrestlers into fight. And there was a particularly tough um, contest in progress. And one of the wrestlers, uh, the, the arm broke. The, the, the difficulty of the embrace was so great that his arm broke under the pressure and he submitted because of the falling pain he was in. And the referee sort of disentangled them and said to the other guy, you won. And the other guy was rather unresponsive. And the referee realized the other guy was dead. Um, and uh, this was an example to Jumper G of uh, the fact that if you didn't give up, you couldn't lose. And I always thought this was a very dodgy conclusion, <laughs> uh, but it stuck in my mind for years. And so um, probably right about 15 years later, when I was writing um, for... Uh, the Holy Grail with Graham, I talked to him about that, and that's where the Black Knight sketch came from. <laughs> yeah. So that was great. And then another one that really jumped out at me is you say that the scene in Life of Brian where Brian is forced to write uh, his slogan all over the walls of the palace was inspired by an experience you had as a teacher. Oh, yes. I leave that as an example, but in uh, the schools that I was at, it was quite normal in those days. If you were caught guilty of some misdemeanor, you would be asked to write out lines so many times. I remember having Mr. Dolman, the Reverend Dolman, was talking, being very noisy once, and I had to write out, silence is golden a hundred times. It was a standard, pretty humane punishment. So uh, that was where the idea of writing something out came from, and uh, then I kind of uh, offered humor is gained if you allow two um, frameworks of different ideas to overlap. And uh, so when the policeman catches him writing out a slogan and he uh, tells him to write it out a hundred times, I thought it was a rather funny idea. But most ideas, you see, come from the unconscious. I think people are always fascinated when there's a kind of logical connection. Uh, and they say, oh, I now understand where the idea came from, but it's rather misleading because the unconscious is what produces the unexpected. If if you, I lecture on the, the creativity, and I point out that uh, if uh, you could be creative by applying ordinary logic, then anyone who is logical could do it. And the answer is they can't. There are some extraordinary logical people who actually are not terribly good at being creative. Creativity comes from the unconscious. That's where most of the really unusual and special ideas come from. And in my lecture on creativity, I explain how you can get in contact with your own unconscious. But if you take someone like Edison, who was a pretty extraordinary scientist, he had a particular method mythology. Methodology. I'm sorry, it's early morning. Uh, to uh, his, um, his his inventions, and he thought that he, he got his best inventions when he was um, on the verge of falling asleep, and he used to sit in a chair holding ball bearings in his hand, and um, with a with a, a brass bowl 
under his hand, so that when he fell asleep, he dropped the um, ball bearings, and the noise would wake him up. And that way, he could spend quite a long period of time on that in that uh, sort of twilight area between being very tired and actually falling asleep. And that's when he said he got most of his ideas. Now, that's clearly not relying on logic. <laughs> okay, we did have some listener questions that I wanted to get to. So uh, our listener, sure. Juan, uh, so Juan San Miguel says, ask what it was like to do his cameo in Doctor Who. In the 1979 story, City of Death, to my knowledge, I've never seen him comment on that, and I think he's the only member of Monty Python to appear on Doctor Who. I think that's probably the case. I was asked, I think it came through Douglas. I think Douglas Adams was at that point involved in the script writing of Doctor Who. I think it was he who asked me if I would do a day, and I was delighted to find it was with an actress called Eleanor Braun. As a great admirer of, and we got on well, and that's all I can remember about it. I don't think I've seen the episode since literally the day when I made it. But uh, it was nice to have been part of Doctor Who, although, again, not being a a sci-fi fan, I've hardly ever seen any episodes, but I've I've met one or two of the Doctor Whos, including Tom Baker. Hmm. Uh, okay, and so then Gribble Garcia asks, what was it like working on the Elder Scrolls Online, and did you get to work with any of the other actors that were involved with the game, such as Malcolm McDowell or Kate Beckinsale? No, when you do those, when you're recording uh, voices for, let's say, uh, major animation movies, you know, like Shrek, uh, where I played the king, you just record on your own. You never, ever meet the uh, the other actors at all. I mean, I did uh, two or three Shreks, but I never met Eddie Murphy, who I think is quite wonderful as that donkey. <laughs> um, except that there was a, a big publicity photograph. When the movie came out, we all had to get together, and there was one photograph, and I think I was in it with him. But you just don't spot anyone. The only occasion was uh, once the uh, Shrek people uh, very smart bunch and they know what they're doing. I love working with them because they really know what they're doing and that's relatively unusual in this business. Uh, just for publicity purposes, they wanted to get uh, a little bit of film of me working with Julie Andrews who played the Queen to buy King and um, they brought a camera along and they shot us recording together but it was a completely unique experience. 99% of the time you're just there on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you play any video games yourself? Do you have any impressions of them? No, I, I would like to. Um, uh, but there have been several things in life that I liked a lot, but I haven't, I've always suspected that if I started doing them, uh, too much time would disappear down that particular avenue. Uh, for example, chess. I could have become quite obsessional about chess. I loved it and uh, crosswords and things like that. But frankly, the life that I still lead, even at the right age of 75, is, is too busy to allow those kind of things. And my greatest love is reading. So when I do get a little bit of time off, I, I almost invariably spend it reading. Um, yeah, I know you're busy now, too, on this new movie, Absolutely Anything. You want to tell us a little bit about that? 
Well, we don't know anything about it. Terry Jones said to us about 18 months ago, he just uh, contacted us uh, individually because we both get together and said, would you do a voice for it? And so we, liking uh, Terry and enjoying his works, I said, yes, of course. And uh, in due course, they contacted our agent, a deal was made, and then... uh, Round about the time of rehearsing the O2, I was asked if I would go in a studio. When I was there, I was delighted to find Terry was there. And he handed me some bits of script, and I just recorded the words. Uh, one or two occasions, actually, with him, but normally he was just telling me how he wanted words read, and I read them and went home and haven't heard a word about it since. Well, and it's, I mean, speaking of Douglas Adams again, it actually it says on Wikipedia that Douglas Adams read this script because it's been around for so long and that he said the dog was the funniest part. Oh, I didn't know that. Certainly it's been around a long time. Mm-hmm. All right, well, looking forward to seeing that. So in this, uh, in so anyway, you say at the end that maybe you should stick to writing books from now on. Do you think that's what you'll do now? Do you think you'll write some more books? Well, one of the things I write about in the book, you know, basically the book is about me. In fact, I was terribly amused that one (laughs) one critic in London um, criticized the book for being self-absorbed. I sort of had the feeling that that was probably the point of an autobiography. Maybe when I write the next autobiography, once we write it about someone else. But um, people are reading the book are reading it because they think I'm funny and they're so strangely interested in me and my mind and what led me into comedy and what led me into this kind of comedy or that kind of comedy and what it was like to write with people like Peter Sellers, you know, who was the greatest comedian in the world at the time I worked with him. Um, and if they're interested in that kind of thing, they'll be interested in the processes and, and the thoughts and the, also, there's a little bit in there about my emotional life, where I think it's interesting, because I think most of life is actually relatively boring, and I do try very hard not to be boring, so I keep changing the subject, but there's also, there's a lot in it about comedy, and I think people who are interested in comedy will find that uh, some of the things I have to say are quite unusual. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this book follows your life up to the point, basically, at which Monty Python started. Do you have any plans to write about any later, uh, write more about later? Oh, yes, I should write about the next bit, but there seemed to be an awful lot in my life because, I, you know, I did appear in Broadway musicals, and that was an interesting experience. I was at Cambridge, and I did shows there with Chapman and people like Brooke Taylor and Bill Hardy and, 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 of course, Eric Idle, um, and people are interested in that. And um, then I uh, I toured the world. I did a tour in New Zealand, and there's quite a lot about that. Then I was in living in America for a year and a half. There were all my thoughts about that and being in a Broadway musical where I was not allowed to sing because I was singing so badly. And then I got back and started my career in television and worked with Martin Feldman a lot, which was an extremely interesting experience. And he was very funny off camera, too. And then leading it speech slowly up through working with people to sellers and people like that, David Frost, up to working with the Pythons. And there's an extra chapter on the end about the uh, O2 show, the reunion, you know, that happened a few months ago. I think it was July. Because people are interested in that. And I contrast how Monty Python was at the beginning with how this vast and hugely successful show was actually done at the end. God knows how many years later. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's a great book. I really enjoyed it. Um, is there anything, uh, we're pretty much out of time here. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to mention? Any, any other projects or any, anything else? Well, I'd just, just like to say that most, most of the interviews that I do, people are asking about things like relationships, but the primary purpose of the books to make people laugh. And I think there are stories in there that are as funny as any I've told, like the one about the guy killing the rabbit <laughs> out of uh, humane reasons because the poor thing was dying of mixed mitosis. And, uh, there are uh, some stories like that. So I think of the funniest things I've written for 20 years. All right. So unfortunately, we're all out of time. So I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Oh, John. yes, you're right. That's right. I just need a few minutes before the next one. It's funny. Talking on the, uh, on the phone is a little more tiring than face-to-face. I think it's because one's not getting the usual nonverbal signals that you get when you're actually chatting to someone in a radio studio. But anyway, if you're happy with that, I am. <laughs> okay, great. So, uh, so, so John Cleese, uh, thanks so much for joining us. You're a great pleasure. I hope it was interesting. Yep, yep. Best wishes. Okay, take care. Take care. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to John Cleese for being our guest today. And of course, a very special thank you to all of our crowdfunders. Today's show was made possible thanks to support from listeners such as Stephen Segarian, Bruno Onkir, Jonathan Pottle, Kurt Donaldson, R. Chris Four, Scott Osterling, and John Marshall. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, Visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. And be sure to join us next week as we interview David Cronenberg, director of such films as Videodrome, Existence, and A History of Violence. You'll notice that that's two interviews in a row. Our original plan was to alternate between interviews and panels, but this past week we got the chance to speak with both John Cleese and David Cronenberg, and obviously we didn't want to pass up either of them. So we decided to record both interviews and run them back to back. I think that from now on we'll probably stick to an alternating schedule less and less, and instead decide whether each episode will be an interview or a panel based on which topic or guest we're most excited about at the moment. The more popular the podcast becomes, the more chances we get to interview well-known guests, so it's likely that in the future we'll be running interviews a bit more often than panels, but we'll see how it goes. As always, you can send us feedback at geeksgalaxy at gmail.com. Alright, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.